Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Patinto L. Batch Jr. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Dr. Patinto L. Batch Jr. is the dean and a professor at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University. We'll discuss Dr. Batch's inspiration for getting into journalism, the current state of both mass communication and journalism, and what needs to happen to shift it in the right direction. Let's get started. Hello, my audience. This is Lewis Carr, the founder of Waymaker. And today with our fireside Waymaker chat, we have the prestigious and new dean of the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, Dr. Potento Batts. Thank you very much, uh, Lewis. It's my pleasure to be here uh, today and to have an opportunity to spend some time with you. Oh, thank you so much. So uh, you've just started back to school. How's it going? So far, so good. Uh, we started classes last Thursday uh, on the on the 19th. And you know, we've welcomed this this academic year some 2,500 students, both in person and online, here at the uh, Walter Cronkite School of, Jur- of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State. And all of these students are enthusiastic and prepared and eager to to learn and to really to make their difference in the world. So we are uh, just fortunate to play a part uh, in that development. Well. First of all, we want to congratulate you on this new position at uh, Arizona State at the prestigious uh, Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. And can you just tell us about your journey to this position, where you were before and what attracted you to Arizona? Sure. Uh, So, you know, the journey here to Arizona State and this position as the Dean of the Cronkite School is really, I would say it's, it's been a lifelong journey. And I, you know, I grew up in a small community, a small education community in, in central Virginia around a historically black uh, university, Virginia State University, uh, which my parents attended. And my parents were educators. My, mo- my mother was an elementary school teacher my father was an administrator at Virginia State. Um, and so education, again, was in our household. It was stressed. There was never any doubt that I would go to college. Uh, it was just a matter of what I would choose to major in. And so I went to college at a different university, Virginia Commonwealth, and majored in journalism. And so my, my life has been defined by those two things, journalism and education. And so I had a newspaper career that took me through uh, five newspapers between Virginia and Florida. And then some, somehow along the way, I guess maybe I was giving off that education vibe, someone came to me with an opportunity about 20 years ago to be an adjunct professor at Hampton University. And at that particular time, I'd never seen myself being a teacher, had never taught before, but went into the classroom and absolutely loved it. And that really, was the genesis of me embarking on a career in higher education. And so I transitioned out of the uh, news business from a, from a day-to-day standpoint and went into higher education and, and just loved it and ended up you know, earning a PhD in education 
and you know worked at Hampton for a while uh, as a director of the William R. Harvey Leadership Institute at Hampton, and then the assistant dean for academic affairs at the Scripps Howard School for Journalism and Mass Communications at Hampton. And I mentioned that because um, then the Scripps Howard Foundation recruited me away from Hampton uh, at the end of 2015. And I became the director of journalism strategies for the Scripps Howard Foundation. And what that enabled me to do, Lewis, was really to interface with lots of journalism programs on the collegiate level across the country and lots of journalism organizations globally uh, who are all interested in, you know, really promoting the craft of journalism, teaching the next, um, the next um, generation of, of journalism professionals and really having, having the opportunity to uh, support those missions by way of providing funding and grants and support uh, to make that happen. And Arizona State University and the Cronkite School was one of the schools that I got to work with quite a bit uh, with one of our major grants through the foundation. And so when ASU and the Cronkite School was looking for a new dean, uh, I was recruited for this position. And so a lot of fine people uh, I know were interested in this role. And so I feel very, very fortunate and blessed to be the final choice. Well, it sounds like you had a foundation that was sort of a 360 in uh, learning about uh, education, understanding funding, uh, the impact that it does make. And uh, I didn't know that your your parents were uh, in the education business. So uh, it, it is uh, a privilege and a right for us to sort of be having this sort of conversation. Can you tell our young audience uh, how important that Walter Cronkite uh, was to the field of journalism. They may not even know who he is. So uh, Walter Cronkite was the standard bearer in terms of uh, news and the evening news and in terms of journalism and broadcast journalism. Uh, he was the, when people talked about watching the evening news, it most likely meant watch, watching Walter Cronkite uh, on CBS News. And so, you know, the other stations, the other networks, NBC and ABC, they also had evening news programs, but it was all modeled after what Walter Cronkite was doing at, at CBS News. And, you know, he was just a, an iconic figure uh, and had some of the most iconic uh, news events that came, you know, under his tenure. Uh, one of them that we recall is the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and it was Walter Cronkite's uh, relaying that news. Uh, we've seen that quite a bit over the, over the course of history and that, that historical perspective. And then another is the Apollo moon landing. Uh, Walter Cronkite uh, gave the call on that as well. And so when we think of some of the most um, historic events of the 20th century, you know, Walter Cronkite was the person who we think of in terms of delivering that news. And so, you know, we talk about trust and trust in media and trust in journalism. You know, there was never any question about the information that we would get from Walter Cronkite. If Walter Cronkite said it, people took it as, you know, factual, as the gospel. And, uh, and so that's the type of man who he was. And that's the standard that we seek to uphold and, and uh, to go after with, you know, with our program here. 
Dr. Batch, are you the first person of color to hold this position at Arizona State? Yes, I'm the first uh, person of color to be the dean of the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication. And as uh, that person, uh, we've seen the world sort of change dramatically over the last year and a half. Uh, COVID-19 has changed every single person's life. And also the recognition of racial inequality uh, in our country uh, has not just changed the U.S., it's changed the world internationally. What are the things that you're trying to accomplish uh, in this position now as you start at Arizona State? So yes, first and foremost, uh, Lewis, we have a crisis that we have to confront in terms of misinformation and, and disinformation and a lack of trust in, in media and a lack of trust in just basic facts. And so we have to work from a global perspective to address this crisis. And so what that means is, is really first and foremost, working to make more people what I would call media literate and the ability to ascertain you know, what, what is factual information? What are good sources of information? What are the best places to get, you know, accurate, unbiased, you know, unfiltered information? Uh, and so that's first and foremost, because we have to do that before, before we really even can be able to be as successful as we want to be in terms of doing great journalism. And, and also I mentioned communications, and I'm going to speak to that in a minute. But we, but we, you know, we endeavor to do great, hard-hitting, investigative journalism, and to you know, to also endeavor to do fantastic narrative storytelling, and you know, bringing more you know diverse voices to the forefront in terms of our profession. Uh, and then, as it's as it relates to the communications field, you know, in, in public relations and strategic communications, and even advertising, uh, we have to work to build bridges to get people to trust institutions and to trust information that are coming out of institutions. And those that sort of lack of trust also helps to make, you know, issues, you know, that we're trying to confront, for example, from a healthcare perspective and healthcare disparities, they make them more, you know, pervasive. And let's look at where we are right now with the with the pandemic and the lack of trust that some people in some communities have regarding the vaccine. And that, that comes from, you know, misinformation and disinformation and, you know, some things that happened in the past that have really fed into that lack of trust. So we have to confront that and, and we have to make sure, as what I would say, make sure that the ground is more fertile and open and that people are listening and, and really valuing what we're doing. And so what I would also say is, is that our mission there then is to address those concerns while also getting more diverse voices uh, into the fields of journalism and communication, and then working uh, collaboratively with other disciplines here on campus at ASU, but other, other, um, other partners at other universities or at other organizations. Uh, and I'm of the mindset that journalism and communication should really be a fundamental uh, offering, should be part of the, um, core curriculum, uh, so to speak, uh, at any any institution. And so I'm sort of on a mission to make journalism and communication just like, you know, 
math or English or, you know, the sciences as part of a requirement because we have to do this as a society is, you know, we have to make people value information more. And so, you know, that's, that's really sort of in a nutshell and sort of high level, what I'm hoping to get accomplished uh, in this role as Dean. So Dr. Batch, uh, I don't know if I told you this, I, I, I do have a degree in, in, in journalism uh, from uh, Drake University. Uh, but back when I got my degree, uh, we didn't have this thing called fake news. Uh, we didn't have opinionated news. But more importantly, we didn't have all of these other platforms like Facebook and Instagram and all these other uh, outlets where people get information. Uh, how do you now build a curriculum to sort of manage and, and uh, educate students but also inform them with balance on where the news should come from and how to get what's real and not real. That has to be super complicated in a world where most young people get their news from social media. It, it has to be a very challenging job. It is, it is very challenging. And, you know, we're, we're digging in to try to, you know, to work to, to figure that out because it, as you said, you, you're right. And, one of the things that's really difficult to change is, is consumption habits. You know, we, we, we have our consumption habits, and when I'm talking about consumption, I mean in terms of where we take in news and information and what we, and what we trust. And I was, uh, over the course of the past couple of days, I've done some lecturing with some uh, first-year students uh, and just asking them where they're getting their information and their primary sources are you know places you know social media platforms Twitter, um, uh, Instagram, uh, you know Snapchat, and there's nothing wrong with the platforms per se, but but there's just a lot of stuff out there you know a lot of good stuff, a lot of bad stuff, and we have to work to teach them how to ascertain the difference between what's good and what's bad and what's you know what's fake news or, or, you know, what's factual and what's not. And, and, and the other thing that I would say is that's not just an endeavor that we need to take on with students in journalism and communications uh, programs, but really campus wide and, uh, and, you know, throughout higher education, uh, because as I said, I mean, students, you know, they, they, they have their consumption habits, and so how do we, you know, look to, I don't think we ever be able to tell them, well, you can't get, you shouldn't get information from Twitter, or you shouldn't get information from Instagram, or you shouldn't get information from Snapchat. No, we, that's not going to work. But we just need to teach them how to be um, more, um, more, more, more um, sort of more distinguished or how they look, you know, or distinctive in terms of how they uh, being able to sort through information and what's and what's good and what's and what's not, and to make them more um, educated. So, so you're dealing with with students uh, who have enrolled. How should we deal with communities that sort of are confused and skeptical skeptical of everything they see or hear, whether it's about the vaccine or whether it's about uh, information at all. I, I can remember back last year when the news first broke about Kobe Bryant. 
And people were like, is it true? Is it not true? Where should I go? It is true. How should they learn how to distinguish uh, or what is the process maybe that they should go through in sort of vetting information? So I think that one way that we can really work to get at this is that if we think about our networks of people who we communicate with on a daily basis, um, there are certain groups of people or certain members who have what I would call or what's known as social capital. Uh, the people who, who know a lot of people who are really strong voices uh, throughout their community and have a connection to a lot of people and who are respected. You know, not only do they know a lot of people, but they are respected voices within their communities. And they have, again, a lot of social capital. There are people who, if this person said it, you know, then it, it, you know, they believe it, it's real. And I think that there is an opportunity, and I've seen this in some of my research and some of the other programs that I've worked on, you know, particularly confronting healthcare disparities, is that if we can get to people who really are respected in the communities, and that could be, that could be church leaders, that could be, you know, teachers, you know, that could be, you know, um, you know, community, you know, leaders in terms of community organizations, and really getting down on the grassroots level and providing them means of, of helping to better inform their communities and the people who they network with, I think that's one way to go at it. And I think that as, as we think of this as educators, we have to think about ways of delivering those types of tools and resources to these people who have these, this social capital in their, in their communities so that you know, it can't be a class where they have to take and it takes them a, a semester to get through it. No, how can we provide them with you know, quick tools that they can use to be able to inform people so that maybe, maybe they can, uh, if it is, so for example, maybe it's a homeowners association or maybe it's a, com a community uh, neighborhood association and that the leaders of those associations are able to say, hey, look, the importance or the, 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 the vibrancy and, the, and the, uh, the cohesiveness of our organization is based on being able to provide information that people can trust and believe. And that's fundamental to us being successful. And so, you know, pr pr promoting that and providing those leaders the ability to train people to sort through what's what's fake news and what's misinformation and what's different disinformation may be one way to go at that. And I think that universities like Arizona State, which has a tremendous uh, footprint uh, via our uh, our online programming, I think that that's a way that we can help to deliver that. You know, uh, thank you for that. That's a great answer. That's one of the reasons that I went into uh, the field of journalism when I was in college, because we wanted to be a part of a trusted source. Uh, when we think back to the, the school that uh, you are now running, the Walter Cronkite, that's what they always talked about. If, if he didn't say it, it wasn't true. I mean, right. people look to him as a trusted source. So, and I think that still sort of exists today, but not so much because there are so many people who have sort of self-named themselves as trusted sources. Yeah, All right. yeah, yeah. So to, to give you an example, you know, I was reading about Walter Cronkite, 
you know, you know, recently, and, and I, you know, I spoke earlier about when he announced the uh, the assassination of, of President Kennedy. Well, really, the news was coming in from Dallas uh, pretty quickly, and really, Walter had heard from news sources maybe fifteen to twenty minutes before he had announced it that you know the president had died. But Walter really held off on coming out with that right away, even if some other news organizations were reporting it, because he wanted to make sure that, the, that it was truly factual. He wanted to make sure that it was right. He wanted to make sure that if he said it, that he knew that if he said it, people were going to take it as being the facts. And so he felt a sense of responsibility to make sure to hear, you know, that he had it, you know, that it was that it was true before he announced it on air. And so sort of just to read about how he, you know, deliberated over this for a long time, you know, for you know, for you know, for for several minutes before he did it, sort of gives you sort of insights in terms of his standards, in terms of, you know, integrity, and his standards in terms of making sure that he was, you know, getting the facts straight. And so you know, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we don't still see some of that, but, I, but what I will say is, is that there are people who are more concerned with, you know, getting the information out there quickly and don't maybe not hold, uphold that same level of standard that, that Walter had and, and really providing the information on something uh, that would, you know, would have such a global impact as the, the death of President Kennedy. Thank you for that. So Dr. Batts, uh, uh, being part of the School of Communication in a world where everything is sort of focused on STEM uh, and entrepreneurship, how do you guys sort of compete for students in uh, this current environment? So what I'll say, Lewis, is that there is a real, uh, there's been a real passion, a real bubbling up of, of desire for, in, you know, it, it could partially be because of what's happened to our society over the course of the past year or so. You know, part of it could be because of the protests over George Floyd. Part of it could be because people are, have, you know, want to challenge you know the system and sort of challenge the status quo and part of it could be because people you know there's a desire to get more diverse story more diverse storytellers at the table and to tell you know the making sure that the experiences of all people are being told we're we are really seeing you know um a real interest in journalism uh amongst our students a real interest in communications our enrollment is actually up here at the Cronkite School. Uh, and we're, you know, I mentioned our number, we've got roughly 2,500 students and that's, you know, you know, somewhere around the highest we've ever been. And so, you know, I get asked the question all the time, is journalism dying? No, journalism is not dying. What, you know, what's happening is, is that the business model for journalism is evolving. And it's really actually going back to more of what it used to be when you had entrepreneurs, you mentioned entrepreneurship, when you had people who were entrepreneurs who really saw the value in serving a community or serving an audience with information and then built products around that. 
That's why John Johnson created, you know, Ebony and Jet. He was an entrepreneur. You know, uh, he was a businessman, uh, but saw the value in really delivering a message to an audience. And so to your question about where we, how we compete, I think that we compete pretty well, you know, for students. Um, and I think that there's an opportunity for us to compete even more. And the reason why I say that is because we're seeing a lot of people who are career switchers, who may have had a career, you know, in engineering, or who may have a have had a career in law, or who may have had a career in business, but found that they, you know, that they were really passionate about journalism and communications, and then they're coming to us now to get a master's degree in in, in investigative journalism, or to get a master's degree in communications because they found that they just have a true passion for wanting to connect to people. And lastly, I'll say is that I see opportunities for us to really work from an interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary standpoint to create new degree programs or new curricular offerings that really speak to uh, the presence of communications within those disciplines, especially in the healthcare area and how we can work with um, uh, the healthcare system and and, um, and 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 also with other some of the STEM programs uh, to really address the need for communications. So I see tremendous opportunities. Great, great. So Dr. Betts, we here at Waymaker believe that every successful person has had at least one Waymaker. Uh, you've had a tremendous journey and a tremendous career. Uh, can you tell us about some of the waymakers who uh, sort of intentionally uh, intervene in your life? Sure. Well, first and foremost, I, I, I really have to give honor to my to my parents and my my grandparents who uh, just played a, a significant role in just molding and shaping me and making me, you know, open to learning and really taught me that you could just learn so much from people and always being respectful and mindful of that. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather only had a fifth grade education, but he was a serial entrepreneur. He started a cab company. He was a portrait artist. He did, he did, you know, he's, you know, supported, you know, the, the family very, very well because he was an entrepreneur and thinker. And so it's his mindset that, you know, that really, I've taken on in my life. And so when I think about, you know, uh, people who have influenced me, my paternal grandfather, uh, L.M. Batts, uh, think about him quite a bit. And then my father, uh, Batento Batts Sr., and he passed away three years ago. Uh, but I think about, you know, I would love to be able to tell him and talk to him now and, and about the role that I've been because he was a higher education administrator and what drove him was really the desire to make a difference in the lives of young people. And he worked in career planning and placement at Virginia State. And he just took you know, a lot of pride in being able to say the students who he worked with, what you know, the opportunities that they had gone on to and how they were making a difference in society and how he had helped to guide them or prepare them in one sort of way. And then, of course, my mother, because of her commitment to education and elementary education and just, you know, just making sure that, you know, that people understood that education, you know, is the uh, is really the key to get, you know, to advancement. 
But then as I think about it, you know, the person who, you know, truly showed me, you know, as I, you know, beyond my parents, the person who really true, truly showed me what I could do with my career in journalism and my career in education is William R. Harvey, uh, who's the president of Hampton University. Uh, Dr. Harvey um, really changed my life, uh, really with just one conversation. And I, I'll tell the story. I was, uh, I was, I was a professor at Hampton and I was walking across campus and encountered Dr. Harvey. And he said, hey, I've been wanting to talk to you about being the uh, director of the William R. Harvey Leadership Institute. And so it was up to that point in my career, there never had been a job that I had uh, received without applying for. And he appointed me the director of the Leadership Institute in his name. And then in the my uh, and then in the second conversation we had about it, I asked him, you know, if he felt as though I should get my doctoral degree in education, and he said yes. And so that really just him that one conversation, and it just coming across campus and him telling me that he wanted to make me the director of the Leadership Institute, really changed my life because I really wasn't thinking of myself. Uh, going into academic administration at that point. I was not considering getting a doctorate degree. And so if it were not for that, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be here. Uh, and I can say that uh, with 100% uh, certainty. And then, you know, so he, you know, he continues to be, you know, someone who, who has, you know, really had a tremendous influence on my life. And then there's a lot of other people uh, as well that I think of, you know, people in, from within my community. I spoke of you know, growing up around Virginia State University, and it really is uh, uh, there in Ettrick, uh, Virginia, which is where I come from. A lot of people don't know about it, but there were a lot of educators connected to the university and really approaching that whole mindset of it takes a village to raise a child. I've, I'm a product of that. So I'm just fortunate, if anything, that I was just um, my, my parents, either by, uh, by talking or by the stick, I was I was taught to be uh, open to listening to others and the guidance of others. So if there's anything that I've done right, I've been you know it's it's that. One of the ongoing questions that I get and and we here at Waymaker get is, you know, how do you get a mentor or how do you find a waymaker? And you know, as you just described, that a waymaker found you. Uh, tell our audience, how should they prepare uh, to be found by a waymaker or to have someone be a mentor to them? You know, that's, that's this ongoing question. Why did that person get picked and I didn't get picked? Why did it happen for this person? Why it didn't happen for me? Uh, what is that it that someone sees in a person that says it's worth me spending my time, effort, resources, conversations with? Sure. So the first thing is, is that what people look for is a sense of commitment to getting better, a sense of commitment to a, a craft or, a, or an endeavor, uh, and, and that they can see within you a, a way that they can help to make a difference in, in your life. You have to give uh, the waymakers sort of something tangible that they can help you with. And you have to have a vision that they can buy into, a vision for yourself or a vision for something that you want to 
create, you have to give them sort of an avenue or to be able to connect with you. And so if you're, that's first and foremost, is that you have to, I would say, number one, have a vision for yourself. Number two, I'd, I'd say is sometimes, yeah, the waymakers find you, but sometimes you have to, you have to find waymakers and you have to not be shy about going to people who you feel as though have done what you desire to do or have something that you can learn from you know, them that can help you along the way and really asking them for their help and their guidance and not being shy about that and communicating that, hey, I'm trying to get this done. I need to learn. I need some support. I need some, you know, some education on how to how to get to the next level. Can you help me? And inevitably, I have found when I've sought this out that people are willing to give you something, you know, some more than others. You know, I've never had anybody who I've asked for guidance and support that they haven't given me at least something to think about. And some have invested more in me than others, but there's always something that you come away with. But the last thing I will say, Lewis, is going back to what I was originally saying, is that, you know, if you are committed to something and committed to your to growing and committed to doing well, it'll also shine and people will see that. They will see that you're really, really committed to your work, committed to excellence in, in what you're doing, and you will be noticed. And people who are looking to, you'd be surprised at who's watching you when you don't know it and uh, who's got their eye on you. You know, the, the, the cream has a way of showing itself. And the people who are looking for the next level of, uh, of talent uh, to develop, they've got their eye on you. And so just know that. So just keep doing well where you are with what you're doing, because the opportunity will come. Well, Dr. Bass, your career has been broad and, and long and expansive. Uh, and you've cut your teeth on, at HBCUs, all right? That's clearly. Uh, how important are HBCUs in today's world to the African-American community? Oh, I would say, you know, they've always been important. You know, they were, they were important from a historical perspective. They become even more important now, you know, over the course of the past couple of years. You know, they play an important role in terms of developing, you know, you know, talented individuals to prepare them for careers and creating opportunities. And what the thing that makes HBCUs so successful is just the experience of really, you know, being at a place where you are surrounded by people who care about you, who understand, you know, your experiences and what, you know, your existence and what you have maybe been through and maybe what you bring to the table and have a true investment in you and, and your, you know, your development. And, you know, people who are, you know, on the faculty at, at HBCUs, you know, there's, there's just a true commitment, uh, again, to just developing, you know, uh, you know, students of color. And, but not to say that that doesn't happen at, at, at um, predominantly white institutions, but every HBCU that I've worked with or interfaced with, and I go back to my original experience at, at Virginia State, there's just that, there's that commitment, but then there's also that accountability and that, you know, there are people who have come along the path before you who want to see you succeed, but who are going to hold you accountable. If you don't show up for class, 
they're going to be calling to say, okay, why weren't you in class today? Okay, you don't, you need to be here and, you know, to, 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 to develop and really want to see you do well. And so, you know, HBCUs have always played that role. They continue to play that role. And I'm very, very, you know, thankful to see HBCUs get some of the financial support that they've gotten over the course of the past year or so from some philanthropic sources to support their mission. Because I think that their mission has become, you know, clearer that, you know, now with some of the things that we've had to confront in our society. Great. Uh, final question, Dr. Batts. Uh, you are the new dean at the prestigious Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. Let's go out by telling our audience what is the unique value proposition that that school gives a student today? So here's your here's your 60, 60 second elevator sales pitch. Just take it away. All right. So if you are uh, someone who who has a desire for a career in in journalism and communications, and to be able to come to a place where you are where innovation is is pushed, where you have an opportunity to work on a variety of platforms to get hands on experience in learning the craft of journalism and communications, to be able to speak uh, to a global audience. Uh, Walt, the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication is the place for you. Uh, if you want to be at a, at a university that really doesn't, you know, doesn't measure itself by who it, who it excludes, but who it includes and who it provides an opportunity to succeed in life and, and puts the resources around them to do so, then Arizona State and, and the Walter Cronkite School is a place for you to come. Journalism and, and communication play a, such a pivotal role in our global society. So if you are, if you desire to be a difference maker, this is the place for you to come. And you know we want you to take a look at ASU and take a look at the Cronkite School, and we would love to have you. Thank you, Dr. Fox. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Dr. Patinto L. Batch Jr. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at waymakerjournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode. 